Hi everyone, this is Dave Wright and welcome to the Player Development Project podcast. I hope you're all having a top week working with your players wherever you're listening. In the last week, we've published a great blog by new contributor Ruth Nicholson on the secrets of successful clubs and a new Q&A on effective communication, a really nice topic for conversation which, if you listen to it, hopefully generated a few ideas in your coaching practice. Both pieces of content are available on the website now. Today, I am thrilled to bring you our latest masterclass discussion. The full 65-minute video is available now on the website, and it features one of the best coaches I had the pleasure of working with during my time in England, former Fulham Academy lead foundation phase coach Arthur Brammer. Arthur's now working at New York City Football Club Academy. He's a top coach and a real expert in developing youth players. He's worked with a huge number of highly successful players, and as well as his five years at Fulham, he spent another five at Watford. As well as sharing insights into the clubs he's worked at, we'll dive into a portion of the masterclass where Arthur shares his background, his coaching journey and personal development, how to plan sessions and how to develop individuals, as well as the value of a player-centered approach, plus much more. Finally, don't forget if you haven't signed up to become a member, we have highly affordable monthly or annual membership options available at playerdevelopmentproject.com so you can sign up and access all of our top coaching content, including the full version of this conversation. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Hi everyone, my name is Dave Wright and welcome to another PDP Masterclass discussion. I'm really pleased to be joined by Arthur Brammer, a former colleague of mine from Fulham Football Club and a very experienced academy coach in both the UK and the US. Arthur, how are you? I'm very good, Dave. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you on. Been looking forward to this one for a while. It's great to catch up and I'm really looking forward to sharing some of your experience with the PDP community. So uh, to kick things off, let's start a little bit with your background. Now, you've had experience as an academy player and you've worked at a number of clubs. You've worked across different countries and had a lot of very interesting experiences. Can you talk a little bit about your experience both both as a player and a coach? Yeah, I, um, I'm from Sheffield. I was at Sheffield Wednesday Academy um, and then at Chesterfield Centre of Excellence. Um, as a young player, I went to university, um, studied sports science, and then I uh, went and started coaching in, in America and started my coaching journey on summer camps with a company called Eurotech um, when I was 20. and. That got me back into the game after being released from, from Chesterfield and not getting my scholar. Um, reignited my love for football again. And I went and did my PGC and became a PE teacher. Um, and moved down to London. And, and in my first role, I was lucky enough to get a job at Watford as a part-time U9 coach, um, working with Dave Godley and Nick Cox there. And... That was a fantastic experience. I worked through the ages at, at Watford. Um, I then moved away and I went to teach in Chile for a year as a PE teacher uh, in Santiago, then came back and was lucky enough to get a job at Fulham Academy, um, taking the U12s in 2010. And I was doing that while I was teaching at Dulwich College um, as a head of football there and as a PE teacher. Worked both jobs for four years and then in 2016 became the uh, Lee Foundation phase coach at Fulham um, and then did that for two years and then out of the blue my, my partner got offered a job in New York 
So we decided to make the leap to, to New York uh, just about 14, 15 months ago now. And I've been working at New York City FC um, for this season. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a long ride. Fascinating journey and, and I guess testament to your hard graft. I mean, I remember when we first met, you were still doing both of those jobs and, uh, you know, you were flat out and, and it is real testament. I mean, just, just on, on your history a little bit, can you share some insights as to the value of those overseas experiments, experiences, whether that was your time in Chile or whether that was your first experiences in the States yeah. and the contrast between cultures? How's that benefited you as a coach? I think for me, the, the thing that I took from America was I it reignited my love of the game again. Um, having been released as a player and not made it as a player, that was that was a big turning point in my life and made me want to to dedicate myself, my life to, to coaching and being a being a football coach and a and a teacher. Um, and so just the raw passion for the game that I felt from America, I'll always be grateful for those experiences. Uh, Chile was was a fantastic experience as well, learning the game from a different perspective and also learning a foreign language um, and trying to put myself in, in the shoes of, of someone speaking a foreign language and, and not being not being at home was, was a really big big learning curve for me. I was I was twenty seven and, and that year really I really grew up in that year. Um, so yeah, it was it was an interesting time. It was when Bielsa was a was a Chile coach. Mm. They they played some fantastic football at the time, and it was it was fascinating to watch, like a young Sanchez, and going to see just the passion for the game in South America. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a great experience. Fantastic stuff. And during those formative coaching years, whether it was in the states or, or back at Watford, perhaps in the UK, who were some of your key mentors, and, and why did they make an impact on you? Yeah. I uh, had a lot, and I'll probably miss out a few. Um, I think probably from my teaching uh, background, I was I was a PE teacher for ten years. Mm. Um, big influence on me was uh, Spencer Leach, who uh, coached at Fulham. Uh, the way he broke down the game and his calmness with the players was fantastic. He's now head of sport at Beedale School. Uh, Craig Lawrence, who I did, he's now an FA tutor. Um, his passion for learning, I did my teacher training with him, was fantastic. And I spent five years at Dulwich College, um, which is a big rugby school, mm. uh, won national championships. And then the motto of the, of the rugby coach at the time was just do your best. And so learning just that attitude to do more, attitude to, to be better than you possibly can be and going through brick walls was something I took from there. Um, at Watford, I was really, really lucky at the time when I was at Watford. Um, Nick Cox, uh, his standards were, were, were very high at all times and would hold players accountable. Dick Bate was the best coach educator I've ever had. Mm -hmm. The way he broke down things into memorable acronyms and his alliteration was stood by me. The way he talked about the future game, um, he was a genius. Uh, Tim Lees was there at the time, his technical detail was excellent. Mark Warburton was there at the time of 16 coach. His repetition without repeating things was incredible. He did a different session every time. Barry Quinn made me watch the game in a different way. I remember him talking about watching games from a coaching perspective, watch this game from this perspective. Uh, Sean Dyche was the 18s coach and his openness uh, of allowing us to come in and watch him. Mm. Uh, probably the one I owe the most to at Watford was a guy called Dave Godley. Um, he gave me my first job there. Um, and his connection with the players was incredible. 
it was he'd have a different way of connecting with every little every player. There was a player McKinwa who, for him, he wanted him to jump higher, so he'd have a little game where he'd make him jump and head him head his hand every single time he'd, <laughs> he'd leave the session, and he just had a connection with every player. Right. So he was he was ahead of his game at the time, and he was the one who brought the four v four Man United model with with Nick to to the south, and was huge on having a player centred approach which really stood by me. So I was lucky, really lucky at Watford. Um, and then at Fulham, so too many people to mention. Hugh Jennings, the academy manager, his patience. Uh, Steve Wigley, his standards and his knowledge of the game. Kit Simons was, was there, like Sean Dyche, his openness and just would talk to you for hours about anything uh, around the game. Sean Reed was his assistant. He came from not just a purely coaching perspective, but a really... Uh, an intelligent man who, who brought a lot to his coaching. Vic Bettinelli, probably the funniest man in football, but <laughs> in coaching knowledge. Um, Kevin Betts, he was there at the time, and his way he approached the, the players and his individualised approach was incredible. Um, Mike Cave, the way that he developed the, the club and really got it through the Category 1 status and the, the, the thought behind everything. Um, Jeff Noonan, the games programme, that would be good to talk about, the programme that he developed. He was really, really sort of a, a key mover in, in Fulham. And Dan Thomas, who, who's been on the PDP, I think you, if anyone has listened to him, like he's, he's just, he has little sayings, his positive outlook on life were fantastic, yeah. like the way he'd say, good day or great day. Uh, choose to be happy, like his little sayings that he'd, he'd have with you. Do you want to be the best? Like all of those little things that would he'd, he'd influence people around him. And he was he was an excellent coach as well with great technical tactical tactical detail. So mm. really really lucky on, on my on my journey and and working with with you, Dave, as well. Like the work that we did uh, with the with the elevens and twelves, the way that um, the planning and preparation that we went through for every every session was incredible and that was something that I've not seen before the, the way you prepare and plan every session was 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 top and it sort of made me really realize the detail that was needed to, to prepare sessions so um, yeah lots of fantastic coaches I've, I've worked with along the way. Oh, well, appreciate that, Arthur. I certainly didn't expect to be in amongst that company, but what <laughs> some wonderful names. And I think we've been lucky enough to talk to Sean Reed and and obviously Dan Thomas through the PDP and a couple of others there. But, you know, I think it's sort of, there's a massive lesson in that for coaches in the value of putting yourself in positions where you're around a variety of coaches. And I can recall my time at Brentford and, and one of the things I talk about with a lot of uh, a lot of people who ask about it is the variety of staff, different types yeah. of coaches with different views and robust conversations and good debate yeah. around, you know, what you value to be true. And I think that's such a healthy thing. Um, so, I mean, just the just the impact that those people can have on you and, and little nuggets that you can take from them and apply to your own yeah. coaching is such a great lesson. Um, so yeah. certainly very fortunate on that journey. Now, you've, you've referred to the fact that you've recently moved from the UK and those amazing academy experiences and you know, the, the different clubs you've worked at to the US. You're at New York City. You've had some time over 18 months in the city to see football, to be working in the academy environment. What are some of the significant cultural differences you've seen both in terms of the game and coach behavior? Yeah, I mean, we were, we were just talking about this off air before, the, the, the real New York must-win attitude um, is, is prevalent everywhere you, you go and I think that that filters down into the sport 
um, the biggest thing that I've seen in in New York as well is um, it's still got very much of a pay-to-play model. Um, so in terms of the demographic of the players that are playing football at the moment in New York is still limited. But the one thing that struck me, if, and if anyone goes to New York, just, just the sheer amount of football pitches that are in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, everywhere, it's incredible. The the communities here, the Columbian community, the you know the, the all of the different communities around New York. There's so much love of football, and people say it's probably the best place to watch the World Cup because you can go to any community in like in Queens, you could go and watch and watch a you know Brighton Beach, you can go and watch Russia play and, and be in a Russian community. And like, in terms of the passion for the game, it's there, but it's still very young. Um, still a very young sport and I think New York City is only four years old as a club, New York City Football Club, um, but it's made huge strides in the last four years. They, they've they put in a, a really impressive uh, system in place where they've got a group of affiliate clubs um, that feed into the academy and the idea is that players will feed into the academy but also feed out back into the into these affiliates, ultimately, hopefully, to feed back in. So, in terms of mm. the the release retention that we were we were talking about as well, it's not so cut and dry. It's like, okay, go back to your affiliate club for a year, yeah. develop, get more game time, come back in. So that's been a positive. Um, and they've had real success. Like they've got three homegrown players in the first team. Um, they had Jack Harrison who came over, who's now in the Leeds first team. He came over at 15, came through the, the latter part of the academy and into the first team. Um, and then um, they've got Gio Reyna, who is now playing in Europe as well, is touted as one of the top talents in America. So there's real talent in, in New York City that hopefully they're tapping into, mm. um, which has been really, really pleasing. The U19s just won the the national cup last year which is a huge achievement um and then they've just they've just been in dallas at the moment where they just got to the semi-final of the dallas cup so in terms of the quality of the players in the older age groups it's you know it's there to see and the positive is that there's a there's a pathway into the mls mm. um they still need to develop a usl club which i think probably red bulls have got the slight advantage in those old pathways they've got a 19s into the USL, into the first team. Um, but once they've got that final nail in the coffin, they've got a fantastic training facility up in Orangeburg. And it's a mini, it's like a mini Man City Etihad campus. It really is. They've not, they've, they've really gone to every single small detail to make it a fantastic place. So mm. very lucky to have fallen on my feet here. Um, and there's some really, really good people in, in the building. Mm. Um, so yeah, very lucky to be here. Yeah, so some interesting, uh, I guess, interesting concepts. And just to touch on the idea of release and retention and that system with players feeding in and back out, I think there's a lot of discussion when you're within the academy system in the UK around the value of, you know, under nines to twelves and whether it's too yeah. soon. AIK in Sweden, obviously, is an example of a club that has sort of removed that pressure and got a sort of similar relationship with community clubs and satellite clubs around it. We've seen a really innovative decision in New Zealand rugby recently with North Harbour Rugby actually abandoning rep teams at under 13 and 14s, which traditionally is a really uh, strong age group and, and a lot of history, a 90-year history around this particular rugby tournament. 
now that you've stepped away from that academy environment and you can sort of look a little bit objectively, do you do you think there is a rush at times with talent and do you sort of think that that retention, release, um, recruitment side of the game is, is an area that needs to be addressed? 100%, without any shadow of a doubt. Um, it's something that I was released twice as a player and looking back on it now, it was something that um, I wasn't good enough. Like to make it, um, it wasn't. I, but it took me. It took me a while as a young man to sort of come to terms with that. And it wasn't until I got back into the game coaching that it was like, okay, the quality to make it to the very top level, you've got to be a very good player. Mm. However, I was, you know, the, in my teenage years when that happened. But this is the release retention we're talking about. It's happening with young players, eleven, twelve, thirteen, a, a very you know, influential times in their childhood. Um, and I think that this system of having an affiliate where they can go and play in is is a fantastic system. However, I know being in London, it, it, it'd be very difficult to introduce because there's 13 professional clubs. Um, there's so much competition for the best players. There's um, probably a lack of um, money being spent on the grassroots um, in London as well. So when they do go into grassroots teams, the, there is a big drop. And I think the first step for me would be to invest more money into grassroots. Um, and then you can start to develop those affiliates with each club and making each club responsible for the clubs in their in their own area is, some, is, a, is probably a, a ne the next step that you would look to do. Mm. One, one club I know that do this, PSV Eindhoven, They've got an interesting model, nines to twelves. They don't have academy teams. However, they when they play in tournaments, they recruit for their affiliate teams and they put their teams into tournaments. Mm. So they're seeing them in competitive environments and they have academy coaches coaching in affiliate clubs. That can happen. But again, that's Eindhoven. That's one, you know, a city that's quite, you know, it's not there's one or two clubs in that area. London's different. There's 13 clubs in, in London, all after the best players and I just I don't know how it would, would go ahead, but I think it there needs to be discussion about that because there's a real case for premature professionalisation with the players as well. They get through to 13, 14. They've been in the academy for six years. You know, where is the motivation for some of those players yeah. once they've already been in it for so long? So I think they were the biggest things stepping away from it that I've been thinking about the most. Um, and also the fact that they, especially at some academies, they're training and having school seven days a week. Um, so it's like they're training Saturday and Sunday. When do they get a chance to be a child? Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, it's it's ripped out from underneath them. It's like, what are they now? Are they a footballer? Are they a child? You know, where's my identity? So, I think because it's such a big part of their life, to have it ripped away is is a big thing. And you know, it's it's hopefully there's there's talk about ways to improve it in the future. Yeah, look, I know prior to recording this discussion, we talked a little bit about tradition dictating, having both moved away from the academy scene and being in different cultures now. And I think when you look at tradition dictating, you, you look at the history of English football and uh, yeah. the, the evolution, obviously, the academy game in the last 10 or 15 years has been very interesting in the way the EPPP has changed things uh, a lot for the better. Um, but also that sort of recruitment and that competition for players and that premature professionalism, obviously, it's a massive debate. I think the other really interesting point you touched on there was around identity. And we were lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Susie Brown on a masterclass 
uh, around, you know, she's a clinical psychologist and talking about attachment and identity and trauma with children and how she's taking some of that work from a clinical setting into a sports space. And just she's doing some work with Birmingham City and really just understanding the impact of this and the, the relationship between all of those various parties is so interesting and in how athletes tie their identity to their sport. And I think your example of being a player and being down after being released and then having to be picked up through coaching sort of yeah. resonates as an example of identity being tied to being a football player, isn't it? So yeah. this is an area which I think sport is is not doing well enough. And I think it's an area yeah. that particularly in the youth space needs to be addressed. And people like Susie are obviously innovating. So some great examples there. Just going back to the, the club at New York City, obviously a fairly new youth program, a fairly new club in the MLS landscape, uh, but obviously got some big backing financially. And as you said, great access to facilities. But in terms of the youth programs at the moment, what does the player development philosophy look like or, or even the playing philosophy when you see a New York City team play? Yeah, I mean, it was it was heavily influenced by uh, Rodolfo Burrell, who developed the philosophy in 2014. I think he was his role was head of City Football Group he was a technical lead for the whole of the City Football Group and he puts in place a philosophy. So it's very linked um, to, to um, let's just say, the Pep Guardiola way of playing in terms of the positional possession football um, links to, obviously, he's now Pep's um, assistant, first team assistant, so his influences will have come, come from there. Um, teams play in the 4-3-3. Um, there are six phases in, in the model. Um, phase one is playing out of the back. Phase two is playing through midfield. Phase three is creating and converting. Uh, phase four is high press. Phase five is a mid block and phase six is a, is a, is a deep block. So I've got four and six the wrong way around, but they're the six phases and we coach through those phases. Um, idea of the, the numbers threw me a little bit coming over here. It's the, the right backs are number two and the left backs are number five. Yeah. The three and the four are the centre backs and the number six is the is the holding midfielder, which is slightly different. And Same here in Australia. Well, it is confusing yeah. at first. Calling the numbers the wrong way around, but yeah. a huge influence, a huge uh, emphasis on positional possession games um, all the way from the 12s all the way through um, with, you know, transition um, being a key part of that transition to defend, transition to attack. Um, so that's been for my development as a coach. That's been fantastic. Uh, learning the, that positional possession mm. aspect of the game and implementing it on a on a daily basis. Whereas I'd used it before, but this is now on a daily basis. It's it's used in every single session. Yeah, it's nice to see that kind of consistency or it flowing down and, and, and those themes, obviously, it's a nice way of looking at breaking the moments in the game down. And we, we often talk about whether, you know, if, if clubs, uh, sorry, coaches who are watching this or listening to this um, are working in grassroots programs, whether they create a body of work and what that looks like. And it's a very subjective discussion, isn't it? But it's nice to, I guess, have a theme, an overarching theme, and then within that have some freedom to work on on what the players need. Um, I want to sort of rewind a little bit and go back to your time. Now, you've, you've obviously touched on some of those mentors at Fulham. You had five years there and five very good years, I think, you would probably reflect on in terms of your own development and some of the experiences you had at such a great club. Why, what, is, what is it about Fulham that makes it unique and what are some of your most memorable learning experiences from your time there? Yeah, I think, that was, I think um, probably something you probably agree with is like when you walk through the gates at Mossberg Park, it's a, it's a special place. Yep. 
the first team in the academy are there, the buildings, you know, it's an old list of buildings, the facilities are incredible, but there's just a feeling when you walk through into the academy, mm. into the into the training ground. It's it's a special place where you, you're there to to work hard. I mean, I was for for the the six years I was there. I was I was part time and I was a teacher, so I was teaching in southeast London, driving through the traffic, getting <laughs> to the training, and I'll be exhausted. But as soon as I as soon as I drove through the gates, I was invigorated. Yeah. And every it, fa- it never failed to do that. So I think that feeling of a club and that environment was special. And that was created by the people that were there as well. So there was a, one of the biggest things that Fulham prided its, or prides itself on still is being open and inclusive. Um, people would come in and we'd be open about what we're doing, not hiding anything at all. And I think that was something from... You know, Lee Haggard opening up the window in the in the in the academy office and being able to peek out the window to say hello to players as they're going past and those sorts of things mm. make the club as a whole and and so I think that feeling of the club is is, is really important. Mm. Um, I, I I spoke about Jeff Noonan and the games program. I think one of the biggest factors that we we had, and, and Fulham still does has, is it has a fantastic games programme. There's 34 academy fixtures in a season um, from under nine to under 15. However, that was supplemented with an attitude of, we will play anyone who wants to play us. So on a, virtually on a weekly basis, there would be sides coming in during training sessions where they'd be playing against our academy sides. Nine times out of ten, we'd always play a year up as well. So if yeah. we were playing a local district side, um, say our 12s would be playing a local district side, we would be playing the under-13s. And we'd play on whatever space we had as well. It didn't have to be a perfect space. We'd play on tiny tiny field for an 11v11 or whatever whatever facility, whatever space we had available based on the other groups there. No referees, we just let them play. And the idea was that the whole training session, if it's a 90-minute training session, the whole get, whole training session was a game. They'd come in and they'd play, um, and so that was that was fantastic. The the next caveat on the games program was the overseas tournaments. Uh, Jeff was one of the first people to to say, okay, let's go to any tournament we can do in Europe. Um, we had a very good link with, with with tournaments in Germany and Portugal and Holland. Probably the best one we'd go to was this one in Holland, in Venlo, where the boys, the under-15s, would stay in a, they'd stay in a barn, they'd have to blow up their own beds, they'd have to look after themselves, get their breakfast in the morning. We'd go over on a coach, have two teams together, and they go and play their tournaments, and then they come back and look after themselves. And just those, and I think that comes back to the identity of a player. I think one of the best things about Fulham was the understanding that we had to develop we're not there just to develop footballers. We're there to develop them as people, yeah. good people, and hold them to high standards. And I think we were able to do that on tours. And we went on so many tours with the players. I think boy who's at MK Dons now, Matt Sorinola, is in the 18s. I think he told me in his time at Fulham, he went on 50, 50 international tournaments, you know, from 9s to 16. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the idea was from Jeff was like we'll go to any tournament we can go to, we don't have to stay in a posh's hotel. We'll stay and we'll go. But when we go, we go to compete. And but most importantly, we respect. Uh, we 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 hold the Fulham name high. And when we 
hopefully people will turn around and say that you know they were a fantastic group of players and a fantastic group of footballers. But the fantastic group of players was uh, people was the most important thing when we were going away. Yeah, really interesting. I, I couldn't agree more with your first statement around the tangible feel of the place uh, when you walk in. And I think the, the fact that the club walks the walk. And I think also those that knock academy football from the outside often forget that whilst it may only be the 1% of players who are in there, I'll never forget you saying to me, we always have to consider the opportunity that these players are being afforded in terms of the amazing experiences they get. Amazing and, experiences. You know, you've talked about Ryan Sessegnon, again, 50-plus tournaments through his time yeah. as an academy player. Now, again, whilst he is in the minority, there's a great upside for a player in terms of personal development. And having been on some of those tours, the personal development that unfolded, the leadership stories, the, the stories of, I can remember a goalkeeper we worked with in Germany overcoming his, <laughs> his anxiety and we were trying to get yeah. him to play like Manuel Neuer and be confident dribbling the ball. And yeah. all of these sort of social psychological upsides um, are so important. And just on the games program as well, we recently recorded a Q&A on the value of mixed experiences and the messages you're putting across really aligns with some of the conversations we had previously with Dan Machichi in the interviews we did in the magazine with him um, around those different game formats. And I think just getting, you know, again, it doesn't have to be academy football within grassroots or community football. You can still arrange friendly fixtures and midweek fixtures against different teams and give that variety. So some great bits of advice there and some really interesting insights. Um, just going on to sort of a broader view of player development, um, we've sort of developed a model which is obviously very much credited to contributors and our own Jimmy Vaughan and, and different people who have contributed to the site over the years around a player-centered approach, which in itself is not new, but I guess looking at it around the sort of micro and macro factors, socio-cultural influences and so on, it's something we promote heavily as the environment being at the center and the player sitting at the center of that. Why do you believe a player-centered approach is so important and, and how would you go about implementing that in terms of your day-to-day -day coaching? Yeah, I think it, it comes down to the individual again and the role of the academy and the academy coach is to, to fulfill each player's potential. And that for Ryan Sessegnon is to be a premiership footballer and a top, top player. But for another player, it's his fulfilling his potential might be something different and we've got to be understanding of every player is different and making sure that we differentiate our approach to players in in you know in a variety of different ways there's not a one-size-fits-all especially in a club um, that takes its players like Fulham does from a variety of different backgrounds it's really really important to to know the player and know what makes them tick and then you can start to, to develop them as a player. Now, one of the best sayings that I heard was connect before correct. And connecting with the players, knowing what makes a player tick. What does he do on a day-to-day? -day? What, what does his day look like before he gets to training? Um, how does he get to training? Who takes him home for training? What does he... All of those things that we, we've got to get to know the player. And then once you get to know the player, then you can start to to you know stretch him to the next level and, and finding out ways to communicate with him and I was talking to someone earlier about individualizing um, sessions and for me that's good teaching practice as a teacher you talk to make sure that you you speak to every single person in your classroom you don't just deliver a, a, a sermon like to the whole class you speak to every single individual and make sure they understand because it's not just teaching it's making sure that learning's taking place 
the only way that you can make sure that learning's taking place is by having those conversations around them. Once you've got to know the player, that's when you can start to really design practices around their, their individual needs. Um, and once you start doing that, then you can start holding the players accountable for their own actions and you can start giving him ownership of what he wants to learn. Mm. And, and it, it becomes sort of, it becomes circular after, after that, that, you know, they want to develop themselves because they can see themselves getting better. You're helping them do that. You're putting on sessions around them. It doesn't happen overnight is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's a real investment in the player. Um, it's a real investment in trying to get to know him and also, and this is why I, I spoke about your planning before the session, uh, at the very start of the, of, the, of the chat was planning around those individual players and having interventions for, for the players yeah. um, and making sure that you, you plan those interventions and making sure some will become naturally, but some you need to make sure you remind yourself, okay, I need to talk about Nico and his, his left foot driven pass. Like that's something that we need to, we need to have a little chat to him about. So yeah, it comes down to planning and then reviewing it afterwards. Yeah. Did that work? Having a chat with the player, all of those things. And, and it becomes, it's down to connecting yeah. with the player and, and planning around it. I really believe in that. Fantastic advice for coaches. And, and it does segue beautifully into the next question around the practical side of delivery. Um, for you, what advice would you have for coaches, you know, potentially at the start of their journey or at whatever stage they are at um, when it comes to planning sessions? So you've touched on the individual side, but you know, you're sitting down to plan a session. What are some of those considerations that you put in place? Yeah, I think you've got to use your time wisely. I think the reason as a coach, people say they don't have enough time to plan. You do. You have bank holidays where you can spend half a bank holiday planning the next six weeks of sessions. Then you've got an idea of where do I want to be for the next six weeks of sessions as a whole. And then at the start of the week, you can plan, okay, these are what I'm wanting to do yeah. for this week. So you've got, a, instead of like every single day you're planning, oh, I've got to do this, 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 this. No, you have a broad idea of what you want to achieve. Once you've got that, that's when you can start to to individualize um, your sessions. And I'm a big believer in not having too many complicated uh, sessions and we've got to do this, we've got to do, we're gonna try this one, try this one. Big believer in calling sessions like names. Um, that's why I think the positional possession work because, okay, it's a 3v3 plus three. That's, they know what you're talking about. Yep. You know what they're talking about. 3v3 plus 3, the, the magic men are going to be the 6, 8, and 10. Yep. All right, simple. So you don't have to explain a practice. Mm. So now you've got a, a really good practice, then you can start individualizing it. Thanks for joining us on the Player Development Project podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PlayerDP or find us on Facebook. Don't forget to head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com where you can sign up to our progressive coaching community and gain access to our wide variety of resources to help you in your coaching.